is Marvel's Declassified. I'm Lorraine Sink. And I'm Evan Narcissus. So our final episode of the season came out last week, but hey, we couldn't say goodbye just yet. We have one more surprise in store for everybody. Indeed we do. If you tuned into our last episode, you heard the voice of a certain writer whose work you might be familiar with. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm George Martin, better known as George R.R. R. Martin, I guess, these days. George R.R. R. Martin's Marvel fandom runs deep. He told us so many stories about his letter writing days and convention going that went all the way back to his years in high school. We had such a blast talking to him and living vicariously through his stories of early cons. I mean, the guy got to meet Steve Ditko, the legendary, elusive co-creator of Spider-Man. So as a thank you to all of you listening out there, we want to share more of our conversation with George right here. So here is an extended cut of our interview with George R.R. Martin. Enjoy. Obviously, George, we're here to talk to you about comics and, and Marvel in particular. Let's get a sense of how you started um, reading comics. Like, what was your first engagement with the medium? God, I, I mean, I've I read comics from when I was very little. It's very hard to say exactly when I started. Probably around the same time I started to read. Um, you know, even even like a six year old or a seven year old, I knew that um, the adventures of uh, of Superman and Batman and uh, you know the Huey Dewey and Louie were a lot more interesting than Dick and Jane, which is what I was <laughs> reading in school in my readers. All through my childhood, I was reading comic books. Now, initially, of course, and we're going back to the uh, God. I'm really revealing my age here. We're going back to the fifties. My parents would buy me, uh, you know, Kitty Kitty comics, uh, the the Disney comics, Uncle Scrooge and Mickey Mouse comics, and things like that. Uh, also, the DC comics with the such superheroes as existed back then. There wasn't many um, initially. There was Superman and Batman and Superboy. Um, there were hot rod comics. Believe it, that was actually a genre uh, which I've had a strange fascination to because. I was pretty poor and nobody in my family owned a car. So, um, you know, cars and hot rods in particular, which were big in the 50s, were almost as exciting to me as superheroes. But at some point, maybe when I got to be in like 13 or something like that, I decided that I was too old for comics. I had started reading uh, science fiction books. Um, I was taking my allowance, which I'd initially got a dollar a week, and instead of buying 10 comics, I was buying like one science fiction book for 35 cents and just spending the rest on comics. So sadly, and this, this drives a stake through my heart to, uh, to say it, I got rid of all of the comics that I had in the 50s. Um, and I went like a year or two where I had no comics, uh, wasn't buying comics. But it was hard to resist because, you know, I was buying science fiction books at that point, And I was buying cheap paperbacks off the spinner rack at the local candy store. And the spinner rack was right next to the comic rack. So I could not go in to look for, you know, the latest book by Andre Norton or Robert A. Heinlein without also seeing the covers on uh, on the comic books. And little by little, I weekend and I started picking them up again. And then in particular, uh, I guess it was like 61 or something like that. Fantastic Four number four. That was the first Marvel comic I, I bought. The first Marvel superhero comic, of course. I had, I had bought earlier some of the the monster comics that Lee and Kirby were doing before that, you know, Fing Fang Foom and giant monsters. And we seem to know the names of these monsters. Since they didn't talk, I'm not sure how they knew what the monster was named, but they did. It's like, 
Oh my God, Gigantosaurus is coming. But um, Fantastic Four number four. And that just hooked me. And suddenly my hiatus from comics was over and I was buying them regularly again every week. I love that you read Huey, Dewey, and Louie comics because those are actually the first comics that I read as well from the 1950s that had been handed down to me um, (laughs) through my family. Once you got into this like Marvel age of comics and you started reading Fantastic Four, um, what were you reading? What were your favorite titles and characters and what sort of appealed to you about the new approach that you were reading there? Well, um, certainly the Fantastic Four was was my favorite, maybe because they were the one that I, I rediscovered comics with. That issue number four, you know, of course, now I'm, I'm relying on my memory here of something that took place in 1961, so <laughs> <laughs> might be a little, little inaccurate, but... Uh, that was a fantastic comic. I mean, they were, they were that reintroduced uh, the Submariner. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, I was not old enough to remember the Golden Age, but I had no idea who the Submariner was. But it was cool to see him found in a Bowery flop house. The other thing I remember from that, you know, that everything was unusual. The, the characters uh, had no secret identities. Everybody knew who they were, and and they had personalities. I mean, the thing in particular had a huge impact on me because he was so original. He was ugly and he was a monster and he didn't like being a monster. And I remember also in that comic, there's a scene where the thing and the human torch get into a fight and there's a real edge of anger in there. You know, you you really wonder if the thing is going to beat the torch. Now in later years in Marvel, you know, they would, bicker with each other, but in that early issues, there was real anger and enmity there, not just the, not just the friendly bickering and joshing with each other that it became years and decades later. Um, and again, that was a revelation to me. I mean, it was real conflict, um, which I was not used to seeing. And then, of course, a short time later, they introduced Spider-Man, which again was a revelation to me. I mean, first of just the idea that he was Spider-Man. I mean, most people consider spiders icky. You'd think Spider-Man would be a villain. Now, we're so used to him now after half a century of Spider-Man. Of course, we think of him as a hero, but um, boy, not back then, you know, he has spider powers. That sounds creepy, uh, but they got away with it. And the hero was, was, you know, such a nerd. And Lee was breaking all of the rules in his scripts, the rules such as they were. He was really... Uh, taking his comics to to a new place. And then one by one, he started introducing all of the other heroes that we think of today as the Marvel Universe. I mean, I, there's such a creative outburst in those years in the early 60s. I, it, it's astonishing to think of that, you know, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, the X-Men, the Avengers, Thor, Iron Man, Ant-Man, the Hulk, all, all within a very short period of time. What an amazing burst of uh, originality and creativity. So, George, picking up on what you're saying about the, those kind of really heady early days of Marvel, were you able then to kind of like identify that shift in terms of approach? I mean, we're talking obviously 60 some odd years later, but like as a teenager, were you able to to call out, hey, this is different than the other stuff I've been reading? Yes, I, th- I think I was. I don't know if I thought about it initially a, a great deal, but then I, I thought about it more in the years that followed 
when I got involved in the early days of comics fandom, which of course also came about because of Marvel. You know, I, I had been writing letters to, uh, to DC for, for, uh, a while. They never published any of them, but then I started writing letters, dear Stan and Jack, just that was original too. I mean, when you wrote a letter to DC, it was dear editor. Um, but with Marvel, there was just personal. There was dear Stan and Jack, and Stan Stan's personality was all over the letter column and all that. Anyway, they they published one of my letters, and in those days, when they published your letter, your full address was underneath it. And suddenly, I started getting letters from other comic book fans around the country, uh, and I started getting fanzines. People just sent me out of the blue, you know. Hey, I saw your letter in Fantastic Four. I like them too. Here, here's my fanzine. I didn't even know what a fanzine was, and I'm getting free ones in the mail. But then I started, I liked getting them. I liked what was in them, and I started sending off my uh, sticky quarters, as they were called. That's how you did it in those days. Most fanzines were a quarter. So you had to take an actual quarter, and you didn't want it bouncing around in the envelope. So you, you scotch-taped it to an index card and put it inside a, an envelope and mailed it off. And uh, when he got it at the other end, the scotch-tape it is sticky, so they called them sticky quarters. But in those comic fanzines, there was a lot of there were a lot of fanzines coming out then. Most of them, I think, published by other high school kids like me. A lot of them had letters and discussions and uh, debates about uh, various comic uh, you know articles about the history of golden age things, but also debates about current comics. You know, I'm wondering. <laughs> obviously, there was like a very voracious fandom via the mail, but. Were you able to kind of like have that sort of community with other fans locally when you were a kid or was it pretty much by mail? It was pretty much 98% by mail, yeah. (laughs) But through the fanzines and the things I met, all sorts of people, some of whom remain uh, friends of mine uh, to this day. Uh, Howard Waldrop, for one, amazing short story writer. Um, I filled out my collection by buying uh, Brave and Bold number 28 from him. Uh, for a quarter, as it happened. <laughs> that was the first Justice League. That's the, when they first <laughs> teamed up. That's amazing. That's right. I didn't have. I didn't get that on the stands. That must have come out when I was on my hiatus from comics. But I started buying it again. And there were ads. People in the back of these comic books were, were selling their doubles or their collections, and you know, you could you could buy things. So I sent away my quarter to Howard, and uh, he he sent me Brave and Bold number twenty eight. Um, as I like to say to Howard, I, I still have Brave and Bold number 28. I think it's worth like, I don't know, $50,000 now or something. Howard has spent the quarter, however. Uh, <laughs> so I came out ahead on that. But he denies that. He says, hey, I bought it for a dime. I sold it for a quarter. I made out like a bandit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he and I are still friends today and have collaborated on stories, uh, the course. Well, speaking of... Stan and and Jack, I love that, you know, you were able to write these letters where you address them directly to who you were talking to. Um, Would you mind reading us your letter that was featured in Fantastic Four number 32? Sure. (laughs) Dear Stan and Jack, ho-hum, another month, another bunch of classics. But then what else can one expect from you chaps? I love that chaps. I was like putting on my fake British thing so that they on the Jersey kid. Anyway, Fantastic Four number 29 was once again sublime with the beautiful Kirby Stone artwork, giving just the right impact to Stan's sparkling script. 
As for that last panel on page 11, I could rave all day and still not run out of words. When my beautiful eyes first glinted hungrily at that panel, hydrogen bombs exploded <laughs> inside my brain, and I was swept away by the sheer magnificence of it. Yeah, you got to wonder why they printed these letters. <laughs> this is so critical. Um, please, fellas, don't do that too often unless you want to see me die young. However, I regret to inform you that I found one flaw in this otherwise perfect masterpiece. A flaw that is, regrettably, very common with you. When we last saw the Red Ghost in Fantastic Four number 13, he was stuck on the moon, being chased around by three superpowered apes, livid with hatred, and waving Mr. Fantastic's paralyzer ray at him. Now, suddenly, you bring him back in full control of his apes without one single word of explanation. This isn't the first time you brought back a villain without properly explaining how. You did it when you revived the Puppet Master in Fantastic Four number 14 after Reed had pronounced him dead in Fantastic Four number 8. Some scientist can't even tell whether a chap is living or dead, but bright enough to come up with a super-amplified, cosmic-powered, radioactive doohickey ray at a moment's notice. In conclusion, I wish you good luck on all forthcoming books, but Stan, don't pull any more returning villains out of your hat. Next time, tell us how they remade the scenes, okay? Okay. <laughs> And now, look, this one is signed George R.R. R. Martin. So somewhere between 1963 and 1964, I started using that second R, which uh, was my confirmation name. I mean, I was born George Raymond Martin, but I was raised Catholic. And at age 13, you take a, you have confirmation and you take another name. So uh, I took a confirmation name and at some point there, I started using it. So that's cool. And Stan replied here, wow, are our faces red? You want the truth, Georgie? I don't like the Georgie. Uh, we just plain forgot where we last left the Red Ghost and didn't have time to look the issue up because the printer was breathing down our necks with our deadline. But suppose we offer another generous no prize to the reader who can come up with the best explanation of how he saved himself. That ought to win the sneakiest editor award of the year. <laughs> now, that was annoying because he offered a no prize to whoever could explain the mistake, but I didn't get a no prize. Where's my no prize? <laughs> Did you ever get one? I don't think so, no. <laughs> we might know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I got no prizes, yeah. You, you know, George, again, I'm struck by uh, the reference specifically to the artists in this particular letter. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Jack Kirby and Chick Stone. Like, were were you aware of the creators like that when you were reading comics? I, I know my own personal comics reading journey. I didn't realize specific talent were doing things that I liked until, like, you know, probably a little bit into, like, my mid-teens or late teens. So were you aware of this? You're 16 here when you're writing this. I, I was uh, aware of it at this point because of Stan Lee and Marvel, because they— credited the people and they talked about them in a letter column but there was also a credits box on the first page marvel's declassified we'll be right back so one thing i want to ask you is like you know obviously decades have passed um what can you articulate about how your appreciation has changed now that you know, like how the sausage is made in comics, like how, what, like what actually goes into making comics in terms of like script and art and stuff. Like how, how's that knowledge change how you appreciate the stuff you were reading as a kid? I think the sausage is made differently now than it was then, honestly. For sure. I mean, I've, I've talked here a little about how original these were and the, the things that, 
Marvel did in those days that no one else was doing the uh, portrayal of the thing, the, the portrayal of Spider-Man, uh, the art. I mean, Ditko's, Ditko's art um, on on Spider-Man was, and well, on Doctor Strange, it was it was practically psychedelic. Here, he was he was predicting LSD or something like that when <laughs> Doctor Strange is floating through all these voids on on little paths there, and giant eyeballs and things are floating past him. That was like nothing I'd ever seen. But even the portrayal of New York City and Ditko was was uh, revelatory to me. I mean, there were all these crumbling buildings and water towers and dripping things and basements. And, you know, you compare that to what Carmen Infantino was doing in, in The Flash, where it's like the city was yellow and it was all very clean cut and everything was sparkling and clean and, and like modern architecture. But I didn't know that city, but I knew New York City because Bayonne was pretty much the same. And um, that was revelatory. And I have to say there was something else. It was the sense that these stories were happening, that time was, was happening. Um, I mean, Spider-Man and I were in high school together, I like to say. We were both high school kids. I was pretty much on the same track as Peter Parker. And then Peter graduated high school and he went to college at exactly the same time that I graduated high school and went to college. You know, I left Bayonne, New Jersey, and high school, and I, I was, went to Northwestern out in Chicago. I left the East Coast for the first time in my life. I moved into a dormitory. I had all new roommates. I had new classes. It was a big uh, adjustment. It was a change in my life. And Peter went through the same change in life. He didn't go quite as far away. He just went to New York City. But he, he was growing up. He was maturing, and our two lives were in parallel. And that really resonated with me. That made me think, you know, I was going to watch, I knew it was fictional, of course. I was going to watch the fictional life of this guy, Peter Peter Parker, and his career as Spider-Man. And the things that happened to him affected him, you know. When he, he gave up being Spider-Man at one point, obviously he was affected by a, the death of Uncle Ben. Of course, that was the origin story. But he was affected by stuff that went on later, too. You know, he went through many girlfriends. He He went through... You know, he, people forget Liz Allen, who he was attracted to in his high school days. Uh, but, of course, she liked Flash better or something like that. And then he had the big thing for Betty Brandt, who was the J. Jonah Jameson's secretary, you know, which was interesting because I always thought, you know, I was like a high school kid. I thought a secretary in a newspaper would be much older than like a college freshman like Peter was. So I thought Peter was was hooking up with a younger woman there or an older woman. But that wasn't proved to be a case they later explained that, no, she was the same age as Peter. But then that didn't work out. And then he went on to, you know, Chris, Gwen Stacy and, and Mary Jane and so forth. Well, that m matched real life um, to me. I I knew people who went from high school and they went to college and their life changed and they had one girlfriend or boyfriend and then they broke up and they had somebody else. That was, you know, Marvel was really reflecting life, life with superpowers, but life still. And um, Peter had money problems. He had so his own costume, you know, and you can't discuss how, I mean, people are so used to this now, they're all big deal. But back then it was like revelatory. What subsequently happened, of course, is uh, Peter and I were in sync in those early days, but then Peter slowed down. I got out of college in four years, but Peter, I think, was still like on his sophomore four years on 
And then I'd have to go back and check, but how many, how many years did it take Peter to finally get his college degree? And then he went into the face of his life where he was a young guy just out of college, which I already passed through and left by the time Peter got that. So we, we were no longer in sync. And of course, in everything stopped happening and uh, went backwards. And now Peter is, you know, I'm, I'm uh, collecting Social Security and my high school classmate, Peter Parker, is back in high school again. So, um, and even things that happened in his life, like uh, marrying Mary Jane, which I thought was a great thing. It was, once again, something actually happening. We're having a story where things happened, then was made to unhappen which is unfortunate, um, in my opinion. That's purely a thing. If I was still writing letters, I'd write to Stan and Jack and tell him, no, don't do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you you definitely, I see in, in Spider-Man stories, those deaths in his early days, you know, really, they they lasted, right? Like the loss of, of the Stacys and um, right. so on and so forth. And did that have any impact on your writing? Because... Um, Sometimes your characters die. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, someone at a, at a San Diego Comic-Con a few years ago brought up another of my letters, the one to Avengers, about Avengers number nine. And I'd forgotten all about that. Um, but they they showed me that letter, and I remembered Avengers number nine. And when I look back on it, it's really kind of scary to see how how big an impact on my own work, uh, that particular story was. I mean, do you do do you guys know Avengers number nine? That was the Wonder Man issue. Do you know that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So they introduced Wonder Man, this new hero in that issue. He's pretty cool. And he joins the Avengers, and then we learn that he's not really a hero. He's a villain and he's joining the Avengers to destroy them from within. So he's, a, he's like a double agent. But then what happens, of course, is he comes to like them and admire them. And, and when push comes to shove, when the crunch moment comes, he does not destroy them from within. He changes sides. But there's a cost to changing sides because he dies. He's killed and died by the, the real villain, the guy who was pulling his strings. And that issue had – I look at my work and say – my God, my Stanley's fingerprints are all over some of the things I did. I mean, I love the gray character. You know, the the fact that uh, this was a hero who was really a villain, but then who changes and becomes a, a hero in the moment where it really counts. Um, yeah, that's something I, I've always written about gray characters. I don't like the cardboard white heroes or the villain who dresses in nasty clothes and says, now I'm going to do villainy and cover the world with darkness. No. <laughs> I think people do things for reasons that we're motivated and, and all of us have good in us and all of us have evil in us. That's the characters I try to write. And Wonder Man was a classic example of that. And then he dies at the end. That was uh, huge. Um, of course, comic books, they ultimately brought him back, which uh, I liked him when he came back. He was always one of my favorite heroes in the Avengers and all that. But really, they should have left him dead because his dying had huge impact. And of course, later as I went on and read more serious literature and uh, all of that stuff, I came to appreciate the power that a good death can have, you know? 
uh, a tale of two cities, Sidney Carton on the guillotine, you know, is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. Uh, that loses all its impact if somebody swings in at that moment and rescues him. Or if, right. if we find out, you know, in the sequel, A Tale of Three Cities, that uh, <laughs> no, that his head was somehow sewn back on by an alchemist and now he's back for more adventures. No, you, you destroy the power of the death when you do that. The Great Gatsby has to die or he's not such a great Gatsby. He's just sort of a sad Gatsby. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we do happen to have that letter. Would you mind reading it for us? Dear Stan and Don, huh? this was uh, Don Heck, I guess, was uh, the artist on that particular issue, not uh, Jack or, or, uh, or Steve. Dear Stan and Don. And that was cool, too, that Stan didn't just make it him. He always included the artist in the letter column. Um, after receiving and reading my subscription copies of Fantastic Four number 32 and Avengers number nine, yes, sadly, I did subscribe. So all of my comics had a big fold down the middle, which uh, comic collectors would be horrified. <laughs> they folded them in the middle and put them in these little brown uh, paper mailing tubes. After receiving and reading my subscription copies on Fantastic Four 32 and Avengers 9, I finally come to the decision to have both mounted in bronze and set on a pedestal in the center of my living room. I didn't actually do that. Uh, although the Fantastic Four is the world's greatest comic magazine, I must admit that on this occasion, Avengers number nine was slightly the better of the two. That's not to say that Fantastic Four wasn't up to par, but rather that the Avengers was uh, breathtaking, shall we say. What a story. It was beyond words. The fast-paced action, the solid colorization, and that terrific ending gave it all the extra oomph and catapulted it into the great class. Stan, old boy, God. <laughs> what what Stan thought of. Stan, old boy, you can put another notch in your pen for this masterpiece. And that art, I've always liked Don Heck's work, but on this occasion, he outdid himself. You just got to make the Heck Ayers team the permanent artist on the Avengers. A few surplus comments on various tidbits. You asked which villains you should return. Well, I feel that only only foes to FS has worthy of becoming regulars are Namor, Doc Doom, the Hulk, and the Red Ghost. Um, a few others, like the hate monger and the Molecule Man, were great in their first appearance, but not worthy of returns, as a comeback would destroy the effect of the first tale. Some others, like the Thinker, the Puppet Master, the Mole Man, and Diablo, have definitely deserved eternal exile. These four were probably the, four of the poorest villains you have ever introduced, and it is somewhat ironic, all four should have been presented in FF, your best mag. While it's true that all four have starred in some great tales, this is entirely due to Stan's marvelous writing skill, which can provide good stories even with poor villains. Please, whatever else you do, do not bring back these chaps. Instead, I'd love to see the Fantastic Four fight villains from your other books, like The Blob, Doc Ock, Sandman, and The Mandarin. Uh, George, these are some <laughs> spicy takes here. I you know. are kind of like not holding back. It's amazing. Yeah. But also, like you said, you know, even in this letter, you're talking about, well, if you bring them back, that just undermines the first tale. So you had a sense of that even then. Right, right. I did indeed. So, okay, we, we've drifted a little bit, but we want to get back to the world that this letter writing opened up for you. The community that you kind of found or came to your house in your mailbox. The world of fandom. So you talk about these early fandom circles and, you know, like... You have creators like Roy Thomas, like Len Wein, uh, Jerry Conway, who start off as fans like you did, but eventually wound up writing for Marvel. 
Did you ever have similar ambitions? Yes, but Marvel didn't hire me. <laughs> um, actually, you know, when I got into comic fandom, I, I did not have, you know, in, in our little apartment in Bayonne, New Jersey, there was no room for me to buy a mimeograph machine or even one of those ditto things, which involved a tray and gelatin and, and icky kind of stuff to reproduce the early fanzines. So I was a contributor to fanzines rather than I, I never published my own. And what I started writing, yes, I did some articles, I did letters and debated the merits of this hero or that hero. But mostly what I started doing was fiction. I started writing uh, superhero stories, not, not say, I mean, today we have this thing in science fiction circles and all that, and probably in comic called fan fiction, where people write stories using their favorite Harry Potter characters or their favorite Star Wars characters and all that. We we never did that, or at least the people who did that in those early days were warned off it quickly by lawyers from Marvel or DC. No, you cannot publish a fanzine with a Spider-Man story in it. Um, so we invented our own heroes, and I never wrote um, any other heroes, but I did invent my own and uh, published in magazines like Hero and Emer and um, ultimately Star-Studded Comics, which uh, was a very nice semi-professional fanzine that uh, came out of Texas. It was photo offset, so it looked better than the Mimeo or Ditto things, published by a group called the Texas Trio. And my stuff got a certain amount of notice. They they had an award they started in those days, the Alley Award, named after Ellie Oop, because he was being a caveman, supposedly the oldest yeah. character. And they had golden alleys for the uh, uh, professional work and silver alleys for the fan work. And in theory, I won a silver alley for one of the fictional comics I never did. I never actually got anything. <laughs> I don't think there were actually were physical awards, or if they were, they never got around to sending me mine. And uh, I went to college. I went to Northwestern. I got a, a journalism degree, you know, studied journalism, writing, short story writing. Uh, I was writing science fiction, too, sending it out to the science fiction magazines. Um, I got a master's degree in journalism and then I had to go out in a job market. And of course I was uh, looking for all sorts of jobs, applied to a lot of newspapers, but I also applied to Marvel comics and mentioned my silver alley award, which I thought would make them eager to bring me on as a uh, staff writer. And I, I went into New York for an interview or meeting. It, it was a weird meeting though, because I, they didn't bring me up to the offices. Roy Thomas came down and interviewed me in the lobby <laughs> or talked to me like by the elevators there saying, oh, thanks for coming in. Yeah, I, I know your name, but no, we're not hiring anyone. And funny that you mentioned Jerry Conway because Roy said, well, we just hired Jerry Conway. We don't need anybody else at the moment. So thanks, but no thanks. So um, that was my, my interview with Marvel in in the lobby of their building by the elevators. Uh, Do you remember around what year the, this must have been? Yes, it would have been, um, well, let's see, it would have been 1971. But Len and I would, would talk about that because he was hired, you know, not long from that. And and it's it's funny, the little things can determine your lives. I mean, if if I had uh, if I had been hired, if, if I had been taken up to the office and done that, I might have had Len's life instead of my life. I might have been... Uh, a, a writer for Marvel and inventing all sorts of superheroes and uh, 
um, you know, maybe eventually rising to be an editor or editor in chief as Len did. Uh, who the hell knows? Uh, it, it's like a whole parallel career that never happened. But instead, uh, well, I w- went for Vista for years. I made a living by breaking chess tournaments and I wrote more science fiction stories and my science fiction stories started to sell. And then my science fiction stories started to be nominated for awards and then they started to win awards. And suddenly I had this whole second career and, um, you know, although I continue to read comics, I no longer, um, I no longer tried to apply for jobs writing them because I was doing pretty well as a science fiction and fantasy and horror writer. Of course, the interesting thing about that is uh, Wild Cards, uh, which which Marvel will be publishing soon, because I always loved comics and I always loved superheroes, and there was still this desire in me to uh, to write that and. At one point, I was going to write a whole novel um, about uh, one guy with superpowers in a world without. But then later in the in the mid '80s, we created the the Wild Cards universe as a shared world, and I was the editor of that. And I got to create a bunch of characters for that, and I got to edit. You know, we have like 40 great writers who've worked for Wild Cards over the years: uh, Melinda Snodgrass and Walter John Williams. Roger, the late great Roger Zelazny, um, you know, Paul Cornell, uh, just just an amazing lineup. Vic, Vic Milan, who unfortunately we lost a couple of years ago. Um, 40 writers um, contributing to this shared universe. And at this point, the, the wildcard universe is as big as, uh, in terms of number of characters and all that, at least as Marvel or DC universes. We've invented hundreds of characters. We've published 30 books and... Uh, couple comic series and we have more of those coming out, including Paul Cornell is doing an adaptation of uh, <clears throat> the first wildcard books for, uh, for Marvel. And I, I was just reviewing some of the drawings for that too. So that's exciting. So maybe everything that goes around returns to where it started. <laughs> uh, you definitely somewhere have a strange what if issue. What if George R.R. R. Martin had gotten up that elevator? <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> But, you know, it's it's funny, George, that you talk about your career and all the twists and turns, like, in and through and around comics. Uh, can you articulate what comics has taught, what it taught you as a medium in terms of storytelling? Yeah, I, I, I respect comics as, a, as an art form. But I have to say, I think the thing that I was most, that I responded to most was not the, the medium the heroes, the characters, you know, I'm a, I'm a character guy, you know, I fell in love with, with Peter Parker and Spider-Man. I fell in love with the thing. I fell in love with, uh, you know, these, these characters that, uh, Stan and his artists invented Dr. Strange and all that and, and made part of my life. I mean, I did in the early days read these other comics, you know, the deduct comics of Carl Barks and, and, um, you know, there were comics when, whenever a movie came out in those days, there would be a comic book adaptation of a movie. And I, I picked up some of those. And of course I, I had the, the hot rod comics and I sample an occasional war comic, but I didn't continue with any of them. I don't necessarily think comic books is the best medium for telling a story of world war two or, um, or what it's like to build a hot rod. <laughs> um, it was the heroes that I responded to. And that's what I, of course, recreated with, with wild cards. 
uh, those stories are told in prose, but it's, it's still these characters, these larger-than-life characters, this modern mythology um, that that I respond to. George, this has been so great. Thank you so much. Can I just say I'm wowed by the amount of stuff that you remember from back <laughs> in the day? I know, you're an encyclopedia. No, I'm just old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you take care. Take care. Thank you so much, George. My pleasure. That's really a wrap on this season of Marvel's Declassified, for real this time. I've had such a special time getting to work on this show and make this show. We've gotten to talk to so many iconic creators, people that we really love and admire. It's just been such an amazing ride. And we'd love to keep this conversation going. So if you had a favorite moment from the season, we would love for you to share it with us. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag Marvel's Declassified. You can tweet at us too. I'm at Evnark and Lorraine is at Lorraine Sink. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, Evan, I think this is where we actually say goodbye. Okay. Parting is such sweet sorrow, but we really must say adieu. Nice. So, on behalf of all of us here at Marvel's Declassified, thank you so much for listening. Marvel's Declassified is a co-production of Marvel and SiriusXM. This episode is produced by Lorraine Sink, Evan Narciss, Rebecca Seidel, and Jill DeBoff, with help from Daniel Hartley. Our production team this season also included Jorge Estrada, Alexis Williams, M.R. Daniel, and Zachary Goldberg. The executive producer is Jill DeBoff. The creative producer is Harry Go. The development manager is Brad Barton. And the consulting editor is Leela Day. The fact checker is Natalie Mead. The show is mixed by Matthias Winter. And the theme music is written and performed by Edith Mudge. Special thanks to Sarah Amos, Dan Buckley, Daniel Fink, Ricky Purden, Joe Casada, Shane Romani, Ron Richards, Larissa Rosen, and Stephen Wacker. Listen anytime to the entire first season now, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to the very end. You get a no prize. <laughs>